You'll have noticed weeks of farmer protests. And just last week, the EU softened its stance on agricultural emissions in response. Coming up today, cutting emissions on farms. The Australian government has committed to reducing methane emissions across all sectors by at least 30% by 2030. But what does that mean for farmers, for Australia's farmers? The government is not proposing to impose an emissions reduction target specifically on the ag sector. So any concerns from the NFF or others that we're going to require agriculture to be net zero, that is not what we're proposing. Good afternoon. Meg Powell here bringing you the Country Hour for a change from Launceston. It's great to have you here wherever you're listening from. More on agricultural emissions coming up. Also on the show, we'll be talking peas. Did you know Tasmania grows about 90% of Australia's peas? And I'm also asking the question, have you ever had to change careers? Maybe take a lower wage when you did. How did you feel? Text in 0438 922 936. Let me know. Or better yet, download the ABC Listen app. Get to ABC Hobart or ABC Northern Tasmania. Click the little text icon and send me a text. But first... ABC Radio Emergency Information. This is a bushfire watch and act message for Waterhouse and Surrounds. Monitor conditions as they are changing. The fire is expected to be controlled. Embers, smoke and ash may fall on Waterhouse and Surrounds. Tasmania Fire Service and Tasmania Parks and Wildlife Service are attending. Conditions are expected to improve. What to do? Take action now to protect yourself, your family and your home. If you are not prepared for a bushfire, be ready to leave for a safer place. There is a nearby safer place at Gladstone Fire Station in the Gladstone area. Only travel if it is safe for you to do so. If you have made a bushfire plan, check it out now. If you don't live near Waterhouse and Surrounds, stay away. And for fire updates, listen to ABC Local Radio or visit tasalert.com. Speaking of, uh, we've got a farmer up in the area, Trevor Hall, who's going to join us now to give an update on what he is seeing in the area. Let's get him up now. Trevor, have I got you there? Yep, no, I certainly have. Yeah, mate. Yep. Trevor, what are you seeing? Where are you at the moment? Oh, I'm actually uh, sitting near. I just drove down the road towards the Homestead Road, so we're not under threat from this fire and hopefully they can stop it before it gets on any farm so it started probably five k's northeast of where we are and it's pretty windy out here today so the fire looks like it's having a fair old crack but i think they've got a lot of resource up there trying to bring it under control good news and just to give us a little bit of context of where you are uh trevor can you explain where where you are exactly and, and what you do what you do up there uh we got a a farm just back up the road from there at uh, Lindhurst. So, yeah, we've just run cattle there. That one's got no irrigation on it. So all this country out here at the moment's really, really dry. So all the farmland, unless it's irrigated, would run a fire at the moment. And then sort of to, just, to describe the northern side of the road through Waterhouse here, most of the, all the farms back onto the conservation area. So that's, you know, there's a pretty heavy fuel load in there at the moment. And that thunderstorm I would imagine a couple of days ago we got here it's probably lit it up somewhere along the line so yeah Trevor have you what have you done with your bulls 
Oh, well, there's not much you can do with them, really, because if a fire starts spotting, well, you know, it's just, yeah, our place won't be under threat unless you've got a severe wind change, but, yeah, I reckon most of the farms out here will be safe. Have you uh, chatted to anyone else in the community? How's everyone going up there? Yeah, no, I sent a couple of text messages out if they needed a hand to let us know, but, yeah, we haven't sort of heard from anyone yet, so, yeah, hopefully, hopefully all the farms will be right and not impacted. But yeah, the wind the wind is gonna be their enemy today. She's pretty breezy out here as it is most days. Well, thanks for keeping us updated, Trevor. Uh, we'll be thinking of you out there. Stay safe. Good on you. Thank you. See you later. Bye. This is the Tasmanian Country Hour. You're listening to me, Meg Powell. Be with you in a sec. On days of extreme or catastrophic fire danger, fire bans are issued. That means activities like burning off, using an angle grinder, outdoor welding, campfires and cooking on wood barbecues are not allowed. Fines and penalties apply if you don't follow the rules. If you're not sure, check what is and isn't allowed. Help keep our community safe and reduce the chance of bushfires. ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. You're listening to the Tasmanian Country Hour. Meg Powell here bringing you the show from Launceston. I'll have you until 1pm this afternoon. And kicking off into our next story for the day, the Federal Agriculture Minister says farmers meeting emissions targets won't drive up food prices. The government has committed to reducing methane emissions across all sectors by at least 30% by 2030. However, groups, including the National Farmers Federation, say cutting emissions needs to be economically viable. However, uh, under questioning from LNP Senator Susan MacDonald, Mr Watts told Senate estimates that food prices won't necessarily rise due to emissions proposal. The government is not proposing to impose an emissions reduction target specifically on the ag sector. So any concerns from the NFF or others that we're going to require agriculture to be net zero, that is not what we're proposing. Um, We are proposing that the ag sector should reduce its emissions and contribute to an economy-wide target. But I guess I also don't accept the proposition that taking action on climate change must drive up food prices. Of course, we've made clear our position that cost of living pressures is the number one priority for the government. Um, We've taken a range of actions already to try to address that. Um, We'd like your support for some of the ones that we've taken in the energy space rather than always voting no. But the point point being is that it it would be naive to think that uh, activities to reduce emissions won't drive up the cost of food. I don't think it necessarily has to. If we can be be shifting to lower cost energy over time through renewables, the cheapest form of energy available, that will reduce farm costs just as it will reduce your own power bill at home. If we can be moving to um, higher water efficiency, and farmers do a great job in water efficiency, if we can move to more fertiliser efficiency... Reducing fertiliser use would. Well, I just said fertiliser as well. If we can be if we can be moving towards more efficient use of inputs and more sustainable, that actually offers the opportunity for farmers to reduce their costs. That's our government's plan. Yes, that's not the view. I think you're getting clearly from industry, and I think farmers in in Europe um, and in other places, Sri Lanka, 
have been incredibly clear about yeah. how the, the constraints on how they produce food. Yeah, but, the, but my understanding is that I have seen the farmers' protests in the EU, mm. and my understanding is that the EU is imposing a range of requirements and changes that our government is not proposing to do. Okay. I, I'm unclear how you're going to separate agriculture with an economy-wide target. Well, watch this space. We will indeed watch that space. That was Federal Agricultural Minister Murray Watt in Senate Estimates this week. The pea season in Tasmania has wrapped up. Peaviners are off for their annual maintenance and the peas are either frozen at the Devonport plant or sent to New South Wales for canning. Not all the peas are harvested, though, and Simplot and their growers all tip money into a fund for those that miss out due to the factory being at full capacity. Let's hear from Simplot's General Manager of Agricultural Services, Les Murdoch. We've had a pretty good result, really. We had a couple of um, stoppages, I think. We stopped for a day or so once or twice but that was about it um, so we were very lucky considering you know Victoria got a lot of heavy rain and we missed out so that was just good luck on our behalf I think. Mm. Uh, reading some stats on peas, Tassie produces a lot of Australia's peas looking at about 90% I think. Why are they all grown in Tassie? You know the real reason for us being here is is originally our factory was here but also our factory was built here because of the climate. Peas are a cool temperate climate crop they yield best in sort of conditions where you have sort of cool nights and warm days a lot of heat will impact yield tasmania is probably the the place in australia to achieve the best quality and highest pea yields that we can get with peas with flowering if really hot conditions are flowering they'll tend to drop flowers and won't set pods where those flowers are Uh so it's the heat and the 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 constant temperature that will impact the plants. Les, can you sum up how the pea season went? Was it better than the previous season? 100% better. Like, uh, we, we've had a good season. We haven't had a cracking season, but we've had a pretty good season. 2023 season, we, we really struggled with, uh, or 22-23, we struggled with planting because of the wet winter and rain. For our pea crops and a lot of our crops, we need to be able to plant sequentially. So we need to plant X amount of volume for, for a, a weekly harvest of, you know, three and a half thousand tonne or approximately, just to meet the factory requirements. So if it rains a lot and it's wet at planting, we struggle to get the plant, the crop planted as we need to. This year it was a really good year for planting, so we got crop in early. Uh, those early crops yielded okay. They certainly weren't impacted by the wet weather like they were the previous year. So yields were up a lot on early crops and then you know, it just followed through the season. We were able to plant exactly when we needed to. And, you know, we stepped into harvest in November and, and a lot of those early crops the previous year that had been impacted by cholera and were yielding very low yields, like two and three tonne to the hectare and four tonne to the hectare, yielded much better this year. So they were all up around that five to six to seven tonne to the hectare. So, Les, a lot of people may not realise that the planning for your peas and beans that for growers is actually based around what can come through the factory. Can you talk that through about yeah how that planning goes? Plan around a weekly throughput for the factory. Like with peas, uh, we plan on a six-day week and uh, it's normally around that, you know, 600, five to 600 tonne a day. 
on the sixth day week and we leave the seventh day free in case we have peas come forward or, or peas mature out of sequence that we hopefully we, we can handle. Same with beans. So with beans we plan on around about 12 or 1300 tonne a week uh, through the plant and so we have to plant exactly within you know one week periods to make sure that we can harvest in those weekly periods as well. And as we go through the planting season particularly with peas, we have to change the planting. So, you know, early on they take longer to mature and later in the season, as we go through the planting season, the maturity time closes. So we get to about 75, 80 days at the end of the season from planting to maturity. It's a very quick crop. But it's also, there's a lot of careful planning in how we plant the crop and to make sure we can try and harvest as much of it as we can. Not all pea crops will be harvested and there is a fund that will support growers that miss out. What's all that about? It's just simply a fund that um, that the growers and the company jointly put in matching funds to, to generate a fund that if crops are bypassed, we can pay those crops out per the contract. We can bypass up to about 10% of the crop and pay the growers out that are the bypassed. To, to what they need to be paid out by the contract. So it is a reasonable fund. Um, there's a lot of money goes into it and basically without it, we, we probably wouldn't get growers to grow peas. It ensures that we're never going to be in a situation where we'll be able to harvest all the peas. You know, it, it's just a fact of life that we can't basically program all the peas to, you know, to exactly what we want. Uh, to give an example, this year we had crops coming in about seven to 10 days out of sequence, just maturing quicker than we previously planted for. And that all, all of a sudden generates, you know, a bulge in the program. You know, the factory can step up and try and get through as much of that as they can, but they can't just ramp up. You know, we've been redeveloping the factory and putting new tunnels, freezer tunnels in. And so I think the best day we had this year was, best week we had this year was over 4,000 tonne, where normally we could, we'll only get to about 3,500 tonne. So the factory, you know, we're seeing the results in the factory have been able to process more when there's a bulge in the program. Yeah, so all, all of our all of our peas are grown in Tasmania and then we send um, peas to our, our canning lines in Bathurst to, to do our canning with as well. Last time we spoke, it was at the opening of the Piranha potato storage facilities. Have you started to get some spuds going through there? So we're now completing the build. We've just done all the... Um, the asphalting around those buildings. Uh, the ones at Mount Joy, we're just completing some electrical work as we are at, at the one at Wynyard. We'll commence, or we're looking like we'll commence storage at Wynyard um, about the, I think somewhere between the 11th and 13th or 14th of March. And we'll probably do a similar timing at uh, Prana in, in the Midlands. So we're, we're sort of bringing the, the harvest forward a little bit this year. And, and we can do that because, you know, obviously at the moment we're getting some cool nights the temperature of the potatoes that dominates when we can start storage. So we need the temperature of potatoes to be, you know, in that 17, 18 degrees or below. And the cool nights at the moment are, are looking like we'll be able to start storage a little earlier than in the past. The quicker we can start the storage and, and get potatoes going in there and hopefully complete harvest, the, the less risk there'll be at losing potatoes through that winter period. Simplot's General Manager of Agricultural Services, Les Murdoch, chatting to Claire Burberry about the pea harvest wrap-up, finishing up there with an update on the spud storage developments across the state. You're listening to the Tasmanian Country Hour. I'm Meg Powell. 
G'day, this is Becky Cole inviting you to join me each week for Saturday Night Country. For more than 30 years, we've been playing the best in Australian country music, as well as the overseas artists that you know and love. So whether it's the classic tunes that you grew up with, the best new releases or the interviews of your favourite acts, you'll find it all on Saturday Night Country. Saturday Night Country, hear it anytime on the ABC Listen app. How hard is it to regenerate tired, unproductive land and turn it into a self-sustaining organic farm? It's something Thomas and Nanette both asked themselves a few times before embarking on that very project. Three years in, they've now got a productive 12-hectare farm called Apinoka. Clancy Barlin Clancy has the story. Rain, like last winter was quite a bit drier than the, the previous year and spring as well, so... Yeah, it's kind of being flexible and adapting as needed as you go along. When Thomas and Nanette both are first moved to their property in Mountain Creek, about half an hour's drive from Hobart, the land was overgrazed, dry and unproductive. Originally from South Africa, the couple had been living in the Philippines and noticed the locally grown Filipino food tasted better than anything bought from major supermarkets back home. After settling in southern Tasmania and feeling inspired, they set about trying to regenerate the farmland and recapture the taste of fresh, organic produce they could sell locally. So you're saying that these taste a bit different to the supermarket ones? Not a bit different, very different. <laughs> oh, they're so sweet. That's really good. Our main thing is to use regenerative practices because we don't only want to sustain the land or farm sustainably we also want to regenerate the soil and and bring life back we've got a mixed farming enterprise if that's perhaps something you might like to call it we've got we run some dairy cows and sheep and then we've got some laying hens and also chickens for meat that's just for ourselves we're doing a trial at the moment oh and we also have pigs and the different animals we we move around throughout the paddock and, and in different parts of the land. And their main job is to help with the regenerative practices on our farm. When we got this land, there wasn't much growing and it was quite difficult to grow anything on here. The soil, you well, the places where you could dig a shovel into the soil there would just be dirt, no worms, no life in the soil. And personally, regenerative farming for us means bringing life back. What's the background that you have as a family in farming and and what lessons have you learnt along the way? Oh boy, I couldn't even start to, to mention the lessons. It's been a very steep learning curve and it still is. Thomas grew up on a commercial dairy farm, so the experience that he had of farming is very different to what we are trying to do here. And I grew up in the city, so I have no history or background of farming. It's it's just something that we've always talked about doing, and especially since having kids, that just added to the added a sense of urgency, I guess, to get this started and for them to to grow up learning about where food comes from, how it works, the effort that goes into into something like that, the time that it takes, just to to create a sense of value and appreciation from a young age 
for things that we often seem to take for granted. Can you tell me about the sort of produce that you're growing here as well? Pasture-laid eggs, that's one of the main ones. And then we also, at the moment, we're growing strawberries. We are heading towards the end of strawberry season, but that's, that's a big one throughout summer. We've done pick-your-own days for the first time this season. And then we also provide to one or two little restaurants or, or shops. And then the other produce, we've got cherry tomatoes. We've got quite a few different cucumbers, uh, chilies, capsicums, eggplants. They're just starting to ripen. Some zucchini, squashes, pumpkins, those, those things starting. I would love to know what advice you would give to any families or individuals that might want to do something similar to what you've decided to do. I think for us, it has been to just start, just start and do something. And if it ever doesn't work as you quite hoped it would, that's okay. And there's always time to change things and make it work better and improve it. But just start with something and then take it from there. It's kind of a joke in our house, but we seem to like to put deadlines on ourselves, <laughs> like ordering chicks, and then we have to have a brooder ready for them, and we have to have the chicken tractor ready for them, and nesting boxes and all those things. That's kind of how we do it. I don't think it's the best way <laughs> for everyone, but for us, that has, that's been one of the things that's made it work. Apinoka is also one of the 12 small-scale Tasmanian producers to join the Sprout Producer Program. Throughout this year, they'll work with mentors and other farmers to help develop their business. The support that Sprout provides to small producers is just invaluable. We, we've just started with a program, so we're really looking forward to lots of learning throughout this year. But we've had our first field day through Sprout, and that is where... You go out and visit different farms. And it's just such a wonderful opportunity to learn from one another. Who are you selling to and how have you found buyers? So we've got one restaurant in Franklin that they've been really supportive and they use a lot of our, our pasture-laid eggs. That's Petty Sessions or Osteria in Franklin. And then we also provide eggs to Rough Rice in the city. And Umara has been very supportive and continues to be for small producers. How do you find this balance? How do you make that balance between growing enough to keep the farm productive but not growing too much that anything goes to waste? That's a very good and a very relevant question and it is a tricky balance and it continues to be. Um, I think the, the main challenge comes in certain places like Umara, they understand the the small producer and why it isn't always possible to provide the same vegetables throughout the year and the same quantity. So things like that is, is so important. And without that, small producers won't be able to even get their produce into the market. Uh, many shops and even fruit and veg shops don't necessarily understand that. And that makes it tricky because of course, people want to go into a shop and buy strawberries throughout the year, but Tassie cannot grow strawberries throughout the year. So it's, it's that balance of understanding what is available, what is the price you're willing to pay, are you okay with buying any produce that has been produced for masses or not? And it's, it comes down to a personal choice. 
But having that balance is tricky. And they're fortunately having the pigs, nothing on the farm goes to waste. Nanette Botha from Apinoka Regenerative Farming at Mountain River, ending that chat with Clancy Barlin. You're listening to the Tasmanian Country Hour. Well before the sun starts shining, our local team are starting their day getting ready to help you start yours. We'll make you laugh, we'll make you cry, but mostly we'll inform you as to what's happening. Local news, national news, weather and what our community is up to. ABC Breakfast, getting you grounded for the day. Weekday mornings on ABC Radio and live on the ABC Listen app. Meg Power with you here for the Tasmanian Country Hour. We're coming up to headlines, but after that we'll have a check-in on the weather and we're going to get into our story about uh, older apprentices changing careers later in life. But first, let's get to some news headlines with Ellie Ward in the Hobart Newsroom. Thanks there, Meg. A woman from Victoria who was evacuated from the fire zone in northeast Tasmania this morning has praised the efforts of fire crews to get campers to safety. Emergency services evacuated campers this morning from the popular Waterhouse Conservation Area and surrounds as an out-of-control bushfire threatened. Tasmania's major parties have hit the campaign trail. Admitting the proposed AFL stadium isn't everyone's cup of tea, Liberal leader Jeremy Rockliffe has vowed to cap state government expenditure to $375 million. Independent candidate John Tucker says the pledge will kill the state's bid for an AFL team. Mr Tucker says if costs blow out for the stadium, he doesn't believe private investors will step in to help. Meanwhile, Labor started the day at a dry cleaners, promising power price certainty for small to medium businesses and vowing to use the state-owned electricity company profits to deliver $400 of electricity bill relief to the average household. The unemployment rate has risen to 4.1%, up from 3.9% after more than 65,000 people lost their jobs in December. And a female stingray at an aquarium in the US state of North Carolina has bewildered scientists after it was found to be pregnant with no male involvement. The rust-coloured stingray named Charlotte is the size of a dinner plate and has not had male company for eight years. More news at one. Thanks for that, Ailey Ward. Uh, not a story I've heard before. Thanks, thanks so much. ABC Radio Emergency Information. Bushfire warnings for the fire burning near the Waterhouse Conservation Area northeast of Bridport have changed since our last update. In the last hour, the Tasmanian Fire Service has now updated their warnings. It is now a watch and act for the Waterhouse Conservation Area. Conditions are expected to improve and the advice is now to monitor conditions. There is also a watch and act warning with the same advice for Waterhouse and Surrounds. For Tomahawk and Surrounds, the warning level has now been downgraded to advice. The TFS says there is no immediate threat, but you should continue to monitor conditions. Bushfire warnings for the fire in, just repeating, bushfire warnings for the fire in the Waterhouse Conservation Area have been down, downgraded. However, there are still watch and act warnings in place. For more information, visit TAS Alerts at alert.tas.gov. 
ABC.com.au. You can also stay up to date on all emergencies via the ABC Emergency website, abc.net.au forward slash emergency, via your local ABC Facebook page or right here on ABC Radio and the ABC Listen app. Your next update will be in around 30 minutes. On days of extreme or catastrophic fire danger, fire bans are issued. That means activities like burning off, using an angle grinder, outdoor welding, campfires and cooking on wood barbecues are not allowed. Fines and penalties apply if you don't follow the rules. If you're not sure, check what is and isn't allowed. Help keep our community safe and reduce the chance of bushfires. ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. You're listening to the Tasmanian Country Hour with me, Meg Powell, and we're about halfway through the program now, which means it's time for some weather. Luke Johnston from the Bureau of Meteorology joins us. Good morning. Good afternoon, Luke. Good afternoon, Meg. Yeah, it's normally the morning that we're chatting. Mm, it's isn't confusing. It? Yep. Yeah, it is definitely <laughs> afternoon now, though, uh, but only by a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, weather-wise, it's, it's pretty nice and dry for most of Tasmania. There's a few light showers into the west coast and a bit of clouds spilling over the west and uh, over Bass Strait, but mostly sunny conditions elsewhere. In terms of rainfall, only a couple of millimetres of rain into the west uh, to 9am this morning, up to 8 millimetres at Strawn, but uh, remain dry everywhere else, which has pretty much been the story for a while and will continue to be the story. So today there's a ridge to the north of us spreading over Taz in the coming days, Basically, we're just relaxing that pressure gradient with easing slash light winds. A few light showers about the west coast for the next couple of days as well, but nothing overly significant and remaining dry elsewhere. Uh, likely have some morning fog patches the next couple of mornings and it's slowly going to be warming up with afternoon temperatures in the mid-20s today, rising to the high 20s or low 30s by Sunday. Uh, the warnings, Luke, take us through. Yeah, very straightforward warnings today. A strong wind warning just current for the southeast and southwest coasts. And speaking of coastal warnings, west to northwesterly, 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots in the south, tending uh, north to northeasterly in the east this afternoon. Tomorrow, west to northwesterly winds persist in the range of 10 to 20 knots, although becoming more variable in the northwest and about the east coast. The swell in the west and south today, the southwesterly, 3 to 4 metres, decaying to 2 to 3 metres tomorrow. Through Bass Strait, a fairly benign westerly to around one metre and the east coast has got a southerly one to one and a half metres tending southwesterly two to three metres offshore in the south today and uh, also a northeasterly to around one metre today and tomorrow. Significant wave height of 3.7 metres off the west coast at the moment, Meg. Luke Johnston from the Bureau of Meteorology, thanks so much. Thanks, Meg. Chat to you again soon. Bye. It's the Tasmanian Country Hour with me, Meg Power, bringing you the show from Launceston today. Jumping into our next half hour here with fungus. Could a rust fungus found on the other side of the world help farmers here control the big problem weed that is flaxleaf fleabane? CSIRO, CSIRO, I should say, researchers believe so and are pushing ahead with trials to demonstrate its efficacy. Dr Ben Gooden, Senior Research Scientist at CSIRO, says biological controls for fleabane are being investigated because herbicide alone isn't getting the job done. So fleabane was identified through our collaboration with GRDC and by other researchers as one of the most significant 
weeds of the grain sector, amongst many others, but particularly difficult to control because it has rapidly developed herbicide resistance and that resistance is spreading. I'd need to develop some complementary tools and biological control for fleabane was investigated for that purpose. So what we're essentially doing for the fleabane project is to identify in its native range where the weed evolved in South America biological control agents which um, if safe could be imported to Australia and released to help control that plant. And where we are at with that research is the federal government approved um, a couple of years ago the release of a safe biological control agent for flaxleaf fleabane which is a rust fungus and we have completed recently some trials in the field to optimize how we release that fungus and how best we can use it to control that plant okay so that rust fungus has been sourced from from colombia from colombia that's right and so that part of the process it's a it's a really long lead time um, partly because when we go to South America, which we did, and we worked with collaborators over there to um, explore what we term exploratory surveys, and we have a look for all the different types of natural enemies which are naturally over there keeping fleabane populations in check. Then we bring that to Australia under quarantine conditions, high security quarantine conditions, where we test the safety of that, in this case the fungus, um, on native and other important plant species in Australia to ensure that it doesn't infect and reproduce on them. And only if we can demonstrate its safety, the federal government regulators recommend for it to be released. And that's the point that we're at now. Okay, so uh, what results have you turned up from this fungus and and what hope does it hold in, in controlling fleabane? Great. Yeah. So we're at the point where we're um, piloting the releases to optimise how best to get it from a lab into the Australian environment. So what we found so far, because of these trials, it isn't a full rollout yet, um, but with the pilots, we've shown that if fleabane is infected with the fungus, it significantly reduces how much seed is produced by fleabane. It doesn't kill the plant altogether. That's an important point to note. But the main problem that we're identifying with farmers and growers is they're quite good at killing fleabane. The problem is the populations keep coming back because copious seeds are produced and those seeds can spread by wind and they're often blowing back into a field from nearby roadsides or irrigation lines or field margins where farmers and growers are often not able to control the population. So what we're finding is if the fungus can establish in those marginal areas, significantly reduce seed set, then there's less seed blowing back into the crop to replenish those seed banks. So we're finding that, which is really positive. We're very excited about that. Um, And we're also finding that the fungus, it's slow going, but we can get it to establish in Australia. Okay. So because it it doesn't kill the plant, but reduces seed set, it it won't be Mm. a silver bullet, but it could be a long-term way of reducing fleabane populations? Yes. Not a silver bullet it will not replace the need for farmers to control the weed themselves in their own field. But over many, many years, as the benefits of the fungus accumulate, we predict that the pressure on growers will be less because the populations will be lower, less chemicals will need to be used, um, and and therefore much more sustainable practice on farm. How do you expect that the fungus would proliferate and, and spread through those fleabane populations? 
because we're at that pilot stage, we're really interested in seeing can we get the fungus established and if it can, what impact will it have? We're not at a point in our research yet where we can map the spread of the fungus. And it's not just this fungus that you're working on for in terms of flea bane. You're also looking at potential uh, insects biological control? Yeah, excellent question. That's right. Um, so we're working on multiple insects, but the one of most interest to us, our priority for research at the moment, is a stem-boring weevil, which burrows through the stem of, of our flea bane and it eats it from the inside out, essentially. And the reason that we're focusing on it is essentially to complement and add value to what the fungus is doing. So the fungus f- focuses on the, the leaves and how the plant can photosynthesize and develop fruit. And then in the meantime, the weevil will be burrowing through the stem and disrupting the ability for fleabane to grow. And what's the timeline going to be on, on, on both of those options? The first one is easy to answer because we already have the fungus in our hands and we're already working with growers to optimise how to use that in the field. So that one is ongoing uh, and that is a live project at the moment. The insect has a longer lead time because we're only at the stage of assessing its safety. And given that, as a researcher, you must be able to exhibit a lot of patience because of those long lead times and also putting work and and time into things that perhaps may not ultimately lead to anything. It's a good point. Um, And you know what? I've never been asked that question. Um, Look, we're motivated in two main ways, essentially. The first is that the success of biocontrol has to be critically underpinned by safety. And based on the regulatory framework in which we work, uh, that lead time is important. We need to understand the full breadth of the safety of an insect or a pathogen in this case. But the second is with lessons that we've learned previously. When we talk about really charismatic uh, biocontrol programs like um, prickly pear is the classical example, Patterson's Curse, skeleton weed, so on and so forth, in production settings, these programs went for many, many decades, sometimes up to 30, 40 years of ongoing research, but they have totally transformed industry that would otherwise have been impacted by those weeds. So when we uh, look at the legacy of work done in the past as a way to, I, I guess, teach us lessons about what to do in the future, we know that however long it takes, if a biocontrol program is successful, you yield huge benefits for agriculture. So they're the two motivations which drive us. And you're right, it does take a long time. But when you can yield those benefits, those benefits accumulate for the country over many, many years and decades. That was Dr Ben Gooden, Senior Research Scientist at the CSIRO, speaking with Angus Verley. little change of tack now. We're talking apprenticeships. Starting an apprenticeship after the age of 30 often isn't a viable option due to the low wages offered once you start accumulating debts and mouths to feed. But if you have a bit of life experience behind you, negotiating with an employer to lift the wages in the first years can be a huge benefit. Sam French-Smith is starting the next chapter of her working life with Zinfra on a gas pipeline apprenticeship. It kind of came at the perfect time in my life. Yeah, I settled into a life of my own and um, I figured at 34 I'm ready to take a leap and do something new, I suppose. So you've got to spread your wings sometime, don't you? Why not? Well, before we get into what that apprenticeship is now, what were you doing before? What's What's been your journey up to this point? For the most part, I've been 
working outdoors, so either gardening. I started my horticultural pr- apprenticeship uh, back on the mainland. So, yeah, got a love of gardening and being outdoors and then kind of worked at councils down here and, yeah, got into operating the tractors, doing the roadside slashing, and then a position came up at Rio Tinto. So I wouldn't mind owning a property sometime, so I kind of made the jump over there and um, – I enjoyed working with Rio and I could have a long-term career there, but I did miss being outdoors. So fast forward to now, you, you started an apprenticeship at, at 34, 34 years old. How did this come about? When I had applied uh, for Rio Tinto, obviously I had to go through SEEK and my profile was still on SEEK. So obviously Zinfra must have been, I guess, scouting around looking for someone and they viewed my profile, thought I'd be a good fit. So they actually approached me. I was at that point where I honestly didn't think it was a viable option because I am on my own and I'm 34 and, you know, at 34 you do incur life costs and, you know, mm. um, I have animals, which there goes for us for money. So <laughs> <laughs> I heard back from them and they were really keen. I passed the aptitude test, all that sort of stuff. Um, had the interview with them and it was after the interview, after talking to them that, I really got a good feel for the company. Like they were just so welcoming and forthcoming and appreciated me. And I'd been, I'd gone through a few workplaces that just you didn't get appreciated, I suppose. And I really put in 100% when I'm at work. So I like, I like to get that back. I was really keen. And it was, I think it was only like three days later, they rang me and said that they were really excited to offer me the position. And we spoke about pay wise and they, Definitely have made it a viable option for me to actually do the adult apprenticeship. So, so you're not on uh, typical apprentice wages then, I guess, which helps? The first year apprentice wage that they'd offered, I sat down and worked out all my bills and it just wasn't, like I said to them, like, if I could get through the first year, I'd be okay, but I'd probably go broke after the first, for the first year. <laughs> um, <laughs> unfortunately, it's just, you know, with rent and everything, food costs, fuel, I just, like I said to them, I'd have to either get a border in. So after that, they were really great. So they went back, had more discussions with management and, um, yeah, kind of came to a solution that worked for me and for them. So, yeah, most most first-year apprentice wages are not viable for a mature-age apprentice because it's, it's just not sustainable. So at least they could see that, yeah, if they do want mature-age apprentices for the life experience, then they've got to, I guess, yeah, come to the party a little bit more, which they did. And I think if I was 16, 17 taking on the apprenticeship, I wouldn't have, honestly, I, I wouldn't have appreciated as much as what I do now. I guess, you know, once you've gone through a few positions and whatever not, you know, so you have good experiences in workplaces and some places you have bad experiences and it gives you a greater sense of what is good. So I think if I was 16, 17, I would not have appreciated the opportunity that this is as opposed to now. We hear often about um, a shortage of apprentices in Australia. Uh, Do you think part of the solution in filling those apprenticeship roles is looking towards older people and maybe having companies willing to come to the table with uh, slightly better conditions that might suit a person who has more bills to pay, essentially? Yeah, definitely. If we allow that to be an option when you do get older and you've realised that, I don't know, sometimes sometimes being 16, 17, making 
a decision about where the direction of your life is going is probably not the right age. It wasn't for me. I had a lot of other things go- going on in my personal life. So I was a little lost. So if we make an apprenticeship a viable option for an 18, 19, 20-year-old and realise that there are living costs that need to be adjusted for a first-year apprentice wage, I think we'll have a lot of people going, yeah, that suits me. Yeah, if they just lift that wage a little bit more, they'll have a lot more intake, I think. There's often a, there's a certain fear associated with sort of starting again with a new career, retraining. How do you, how have you dealt with that, Sam? Yeah, I've had my moments um, <laughs> where it's been a little nerve-wracking. Like it's been 14, 15 years since I've done any proper study. <laughs> so it's... Yeah, it is it is a little daunting, especially with competing too. So I did a lot of competing on my horse when I was younger and you learn to kind of um, turn fear. You get that nervous feeling in your stomach and you just kind of turn into drive. Go, nope, we're going to conquer that. Don't focus on the scary bit. Um, so my biggest thing will be the online aspect um, because I've not done it before. But I know there's plenty of sources that if I need a hand, I can ask. And they've assured me that there's always going to be someone available. Yeah, I'll just roll with the punches, I suppose. What will your, just to clarify, what, what will your job look like on the gas line? Uh, so, yes, working on the Tasmanian, <laughs> Tasmanian gas pipeline. Um, a lot of it is maintaining, checking for leaks, that sort of stuff. If you've got any reports that come in, go and fix the high-pressure leaks, that sort of stuff, maintain the substations, talk with the farmers. There's a lot of landholders through this area. And I'm lucky enough that a lot of the pipeline is through my local area, so I kind of know a fair few farmers around here already. They only ever do this apprenticeship when the last apprentice has finished the apprenticeship and they're actually a qualified worker now. So I should be in this position for the next yeah, 20 years if I want it. Pretty lucky, I think. Sam French-Smith, who just yesterday at 34 years of age started her apprenticeship on the gas pipeline and successfully negotiated better pay to make it livable. Uh, Maggie's just texted in to say we need a rain dance. Thanks, Maggie. Very true. Uh, Karina texted in before. Apologies I didn't get to your text. Karina asking where to find the podcast for Tuesday's session with Leon Compton, in particular the cardiologist segment on heart attacks. Uh, head on to ABC Hobart on the Listen app for that. Karina, you should be able to find the specific episode you're talking about. I'm Meg Powell. This is the Tasmanian Country Hour. Well before the sun starts shining... Our local team are starting their day, getting ready to help you start yours. We'll make you laugh, we'll make you cry, but mostly we'll inform you as to what's happening. Local news, national news, weather and what our community is up to. ABC Breakfast, getting you grounded for the day. Weekday mornings on ABC Radio and live on the ABC Listen app. It's the Country Hour. With Meg Powell on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. That's right, I'm Meg Powell and in the studio with me I've got Ashley Barraclough, Ash Barraclough I should say, a reporter in the newsroom here. She's just been out getting the latest on the fires. Ash, what is the latest? Yeah, good afternoon. So... 
You know what would help is if I turn on the microphone. <laughs> Let's try that again. There we go. Now I can hear. All right. Yeah, so um, it's actually some good news uh, just coming from a press conference about the fire. So, yeah, if you haven't been paying attention, there's a fire in the northeast of Tasmania near the town of Tomahawk, but it's actually now been downgraded to a watch and act at the Waterhouse Conservation Area, Ransons Beach, Beach, West Beach and the surrounds. And in terms of the township itself and the surrounding areas, it's just an advice warning now. So people in the area, they should stay informed, stay vigilant. But yeah, it's looking pretty good. The fire crews are currently putting in containment lines um, and they say the fire is moving to the beach rather than anywhere populated, which is great news. And they're going to keep working to bring it under control this afternoon. They are confident it's not going to spread any further and it's definitely not going to reach the township. Okay, good news. We might still need that rain dance. So thank you, Maggie, for that text. Is everyone in the area safe? Yeah, so all the campers and local residents who needed to be evacuated this morning, that did happen. So police say they're confident that everyone who they needed to find has been found and evacuated um, and, yeah, left the area. And so authorities also say that there's no properties that have been damaged at this stage. Um, But they are saying to keep away if you don't need to be in the the area. Homestead Road is closed as the crews work to bring the fire under control. Um, And so, yeah, just if you don't need to be there, um, don't drive into the area. Good advice. Do we know what caused the fire? Yeah, so it's still a little bit unsure. An investigator from the fire service is trying to figure this out. Uh, Northeast Tasmania did get hit by a significant number of lightning strikes two days ago um, and the fire service says that could have sat in the vegetation and then uh, kind of gone out as like warm weather came. Um, But yeah, that's still very much uh, just a theory. Another possibility is it's a popular camping area. Someone could have forgot to put out a fire or not put it out properly. Um, But yeah, I guess we'll just wait and see what's happened. But yeah, all good news so far about the fire service containing that fire and preventing it from spreading further. Ash Barraclough, thanks so much. You've been out there today getting that latest information for us. And to keep updated with all the latest, keep listening to ABC Tasmania or head on to Taz Alerts and get all the latest. We've got just enough time for one more story here. We're going to muster cuddle on Outback Stations, which is a big job. And one remote Queensland family has managed to find some unexpected assistance. The Saunders family from Normanton up in the Gulf Country are helped out by their daughter's cat, eight-month-old Puss in Boots. They've all made the four-day trip to Tamworth for the annual Nutrien Classic and the presence of a ginger cat alongside all the dogs and horses has caused quite a stir. Mum Yana made some time to chat to our reporter, Laura Webster, about how Puss in Boots came into their lives and his newfound social media fame. Yeah, well, we got Puss in Boots last year about September. We're actually working up um, in the Gulf of Queensland at a place called Kalata Station, which is near Kawanyama. And the girls have always wanted a cat, but we are dog lovers and we have lots of working dogs, so we haven't actually been game to get a cat. But Puss in Boots is still alive and, you know, he's he managed to get away from all the working dogs, so he's a strong little cat. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell me, how did you come across Puss in Boots? Where, where did you find him? Well, the place, Kalata Station, they um, actually had, a, had his brother... And we were just saying, oh, the kids would love a cat. And they said, oh, well, actually, there's another one there um, in Cairns, one of their friends. And um, so they, when they went to Cairns, they brought him back for us. And it was a big shock for the little girls because they'd already always wanted a cat. Well, 
tell me about Puss in Boots because he's kind of seen some overnight success and stardom. He's been, well, I think the words I saw were goose hopping. <laughs> uh, he's been, you know, making home at different sites, getting to know the many hundreds of people <laughs> alongside you here at the Classic. But just tell me about some of his adventures because he's certainly getting around here. Yes, well, he is a travelling cat because we do contract mustering. So he comes with us everywhere. You know, we're never at one place for too long. And normally he stays at our trailer and doesn't go very far, but he's never been somewhere where there's other trailers. So, And he's very friendly. So I suppose he's just going to, just, just going to see what other people are doing. Yana Saunders speaking there to Lara Webster. We can't wait to see what other adventures of Puss in Boots get shown off on his social media platforms. Sounds super cute.